Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. We're staging an important reunion now on Distinct Nostalgia for children of the 70s. If you watch kids' telly back then, you were either a Blue Peter fan or a Magpie fan. Blue Peter had been on our screen since the 50s and was huge, but ITV's younger, risque and sometimes anarchic rival gave the BBC's institution a real run for its money. Big viewing figures and some presenters who looked like pop stars endeared Magpie to kids in every region of the country and from all backgrounds. We've brought together Susan Stranks, Douglas Ray and the one with the big hair and he's still got it, Mick Robertson. Over to Ashley. One for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy. Oh, come on, it's more than 40 years ago. But I have still got my four for a boy badge. Lovely to talk to all of you. A little bit of a magpie reunion, at least of three of you anyway. Um, I mean, trying to do these things through Zoom and having all of you on there, I think could have been a bit of a, a, bit of a nightmare, really. <laughs> anyway, great to talk to you. Um, it's a long time ago. Uh, since Magpie started, 1968. Before you were born, actually. Well, I was born in 1972. Yeah, so I was at the, I suppose, at the height of, of Magpie's sort of fame, in a way, wasn't it, 1972? And so I, re- I remember it year, you know, a few years later. But 1968, it, it was actually the year that Thames TV originally started, wasn't it? So it was a, a new programme from a new network, a new station. Who wants to talk to us about the very beginning? Who was there at the very beginning? Well, I suppose that's me, isn't it? Um, I was, yeah, one of the original threesome, which was uh, myself, Pete Brady, and Tony Bastable, who sadly is no longer with us. And we had to audition. The idea originally was, well, before it started, Sue Turner, who was the original producer, had worked with my husband, my late husband, Robin Ray, on a music series for children. And she knew about us as a married couple. And there was, I think, in Sweden, a married couple that did some children's programs. And she wanted to use a couple. And she asked us both to do it. And... Robin couldn't because he was going on to do something else. And I said, I'd like to. And so I auditioned for it. Um, And to my great surprise, I got it. And then they decided to change it to threesome, uh, like uh, Blue Peter was, a girl and two boys. And then Pete Brady, who was, I think, originally a journalist and presenter, and Tony Bastable, who was... Uh, a motor car journalist actually he used to do a huge amount on uh, telly I think anyway Tony joined and of the three of us Tony was by far the most experienced as talk at talking more or less without a script and he was very very good at it he could fill any anything that <laughs> became a gap and she hired um, Sutana uh, and Lewis Rudd who was I think the head of children's at that time hired us and we began as two shows Two live shows a week. One show. Were we one show a week at the very, very start? Oh, and then it, then it went to two then. Because I remember doing two shows a week and they were live and then they went to recording one. And Okay, that's the story be- behind it. And then um, it launched and it was the first children's programme they did. Was um, it originally called Magpie? Was it always Magpie from the very start? Or was yes. It, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and what's the thinking behind the name, do you know? 
Yes, it was um, it was a magazine and a pie. <laughs> so Sue Turner described it as. So you open a magazine, you have lots of different things in the magazine, and we always did four or five, or sometimes six things. And a pie is a sort of surprise, and you never know what's going to be in it. And, so uh, and I think Lewis Rudd also um, thought that magpies were collective things. You know, and uh, a magazine show would collect lots of different... But I think he he was getting confused with the jackdaw, right? Uh, I'm not sure <laughs> that magpies know. do actually have that tradition, but I, I'm sure that was also a, a sort of, of symbolic thing of the magpie. Yeah. Well, magpie, magpies are attracted by uh, anything silver and shiny, aren't they, basically? That's the main thing with a magpie, I think. And I think the one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, which was a traditional nursery song, if you like, um, lend itself very well to um, to a show with the title of that, of Magpie. Did it originally set out, do you think, to react to Blue Peter? I mean, Blue Peter had been on for 10 years by this point. Had, had it? Yes, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it was uh, in a rivalry to Blue Peter. Can I speak there just for a second, Sue? Um, just to say that the, 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 in Wikipedia it says Magpie uh, uh, attempts to be more hip than Blue Peter. That's ridiculous. It just wasn't true. Yeah, it wasn't difficult to be more hip than <laughs> Blue Peter. Blue Peter was a, 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 a quite a staid conservative show so it, there was no attempt to it there was, certainly was an attempt to get some of the blue peter audience and an attempt to emulate the magazine format but it was meant to be just a bit more interesting and a bit more up to date and a bit more lively and, and a, a little bit less scripted than uh, blue peter but to to say that it was deliberately intent on becoming more hip i mean you couldn't get anyone less hip than tony bastable Really? So it wasn't, that wasn't the idea, was it, Sue? I don't know. It certainly was perceived as that. I don't know what the intention was, whether, whether we did more, slightly more racy things or we, we, we emulated Blue Peter in very much in the sort of things we did. Like we had, they always had dogs. We had an animal who was Puff the Pony because Sue Turner was keen on horses. Little Puff the Pony used to come into the studio and um, we also had, as I said, two two boys and a girl. Um, we always, always did something fairly dangerous, a filmed thing, but we weren't scripted. And I think you you said Blue Peter was, and I think it perhaps was. Oh, heavily. What? Heavily. I mean, because uh, so, we met up once, didn't we, Dougal, with um, uh, Val whom I've met quite a lot since, actually. But, um, well, I remember meeting Val. We met her at a cricket match, and um, she said, you know, that they they had to stick to the words on the sheet. It was terribly important to them. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I met a few of the Blue Peter uh, presenters over the years at charity things, and it was very obvious uh, that Biddy Baxter, who is a terrifying headmistress-type character, uh, insisted that all the presenters read their scripts from autocue on the cameras. And what was very different about us is, first of all, we were all much better looking. And- oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I never said that. <laughs> 
And but also we were more irreverent, you know. We were more like the kids, you know, because we were younger. I think we were younger than the the Blue Peter presenters. But there was also a feeling of us being a bit more radical, not hip, but you know, just a bit more in tune with the people that you know watched us. And we had we had seven million people watching twice a week, which was I extraordinary. Think Blue Pe- Sorry, I think Blue Peter had. A huge audience as well. I mean, <laughs> I think we'd be wrong to say they didn't have a huge and very loyal and loving audience. Um, we, whether we were younger, again, I'm not sure, were we? Perhaps we were. But they had been going a long time. And um, I mean, they'd done some pretty, pretty hairy, scary things. But we had we had pop groups and stuff on, which I don't think they did so much. They did. They did much later on. Much, much later on, they started having pop groups and things, but not back then. I mean, if I if I sort of um, respond as a child of the day, I mean, I wasn't there right at the beginning, beginning of Magpie, but I do remember it later on. Um, I remember it coming on at about. It used to come on before Blue Peter, I think. Blue Peter was on at sort of five past five or something, or ten past five. And I think Magpie used to come on around about quarter to five, if I remember. Ten right. to five, yeah. Ten to five, yeah. Um, and I think what I found about it was just that it just felt as though, I don't know, Blue Peter was, was great in a way, and I love the dogs and all that kind of thing, um, but it always felt as though you were being educated. It was the BBC educating you, whereas mm. with Magpie, it just felt as though you were having some fun and also a bit like quite a lot of uh, programmes actually on ITV at the time, I found, um, that they were talking to the kids. Um, they weren't talking down to the kids. They were talking at a level, um, uh, treating the kids uh, as little adults in a way. Do you know what I mean? That's what it felt like. You felt as though you were on a level with the presenters on 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 Magpie. That's that's how I felt at the time. You know. Good. Yeah, but the, the, there will always be uh, and always what was a sort of divide between the 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 fans of one and the other. Although I'm sure. Most kids watched both or didn't watch either of them. But, I mean, there were some f- fans for for each programme. And uh, I think there was room for that. And, and, and that's fine. We, we, we all have huge respect for Blue Peter, obviously, and, uh, and all those who've presented it. And some of them have, uh, we've got to know over the years. But um, uh, we, we were a bit freer. We were freer. We were given freedom by our producers. And we had, a, 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 I think, a more wide-ranging um, a palette of uh, stories to go to because we, n- nothing was really out of bounds. Let's take you both, all of you back right to the very beginning. You were all young presenters at the time, uh, thrown in the deep end to an extent. Um, let's go through you all briefly to find out if you can remember your very first day on Magpie and what, and what it was like. We'll start with you, Susan. Well, I... The one thing I can remember about my very first day, or certainly my very first film job, was that we went up in a hot air balloon, sorry, a a hydrogen balloon, and with this mad, mad character, Anthony somebody, Anthony Smith, I think his name was, and he was absolutely crazy. You could tell that he didn't care what he did in this damn balloon and there were a number of us in there I was doing a story about it it was a balloon race across Sussex and we had about six five six people in the balloon and one of them had a panic it was just she was just a passenger she wasn't one of our crew and she had a real panic attack and we had to sit her down um, throughout the whole thing 
And then when we came down from the race, uh, we were landing in a farmer's field and I think a farmer was smoking a cigarette or something and the whole thing blew up. Um, and the balloon absolutely exploded because it was hydrogen. They're not allowed anymore. And I was, I was the only one in the, in the basket still. Everybody had got out. And I bumped my lip on the sound equipment I was tied to. And I had a couple of stitches, and I think I've still got a tiny scar. But that I do remember as my first experience of magpie. This was in the days, of course, before lots of health and safety. <laughs> well, yes, but then you look at um, you look at Blue Peter when he climbed to the top of whatever he climbed to without any ropes round him. John Noakes was it? John Noakes. Absolutely. No. So, Douglas, what about you? What What do you remember about your first days on, or even your actual first day on uh, on Magpie? Okay, my I I. Um... I got a call when I was working in Scotland for a, a, a news and current affairs programme. I was a journalist and I did interviews and I got a call saying I'd got the job and could I be at Heathrow in a week's time? And uh, they sent me a ticket, first class, to a place called Lebanon. And I had to go to a big atlas. Just, where the hell is Lebanon? <laughs> and um, so I... I um, I got down to Heathrow um, and sitting in my first class compartment uh, uh, and flew to Lebanon where I was picked up in a big limo and driven to this five-star hotel overlooking the harbour in Lebanon. Uh, and this is a wee boy from Edinburgh thinking, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I, I felt like a film star. Uh, and then the the director came and said, uh, "You're resting today because you know you've had all this travel." <laughs> and uh, but tomorrow we're going up to the mountains because I know you're a keen skier, and we've discovered that in the Lebanon they're, they're skiing and there was still some snow up on the hills. And so I thought this is extraordinary. I'm flying in first class, staying in this wonderful hotel, and tomorrow I'm going skiing. So we went up to the 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 slopes and there was a rickety old ski slope uh, and I skied down a few runs and said you know I'm not in Switzerland I'm not in France I'm actually in one of the hottest countries in the Middle East I'm in Lebanon and um, so that was my first day and I thought God this is amazing I you know what a what a brilliant to get paid for enjoying yourself and I think that. That continued with all of us through the, the five years that I was on the programme. There was a feeling that we were doing something that wasn't a job. It wasn't a, it wasn't a stress or a strain. And working with two of the nicest people you could hope to meet in your life, and here wow. we are 50 years later still loving each other, it was right. just an absolute joy. And I think that enthusiasm and that passion of being able to do something that you really felt was not not educational, but certainly entertaining uh, people not that much younger than you, really. I mean, there were, I suppose, 10 or 15 years younger, but it, it, there was a feeling of not being patronising, of, of just being very natural and uh, and trying to share your your enthusiasm and passion with people watching. 
it was certainly very ambitious. I mean, both programs, both Blue Peter and Magpie, were always ambitious. There was always great things going on. It was exciting, wasn't it? Well, how did you land the role in the first place, mate? Okay, um, I, uh, I, I was a researcher on Magpie before I presented. So I, I got to know these guys um, as a researcher, and it was uh, I was part of the team already. So that made it rather easier to join in. But I do remember two things, and this is a quite extraordinary um, coincidence because just beside me here, and I, I, I don't normally sit around with a photo of myself um, from the past uh, close to hand, but um, we, uh, one of the things I had to do was, was uh, explain a little bit of my history, and they asked me to find a photo of myself when I was tiny. Oh. And that, that is the actual Thames Television caption. That's what we, how they did them in, in, on a black background. And I, I saved that. And I, I, I shouldn't, I don't I always have it sort of sitting beside me in life, I promise you. But it's just happened to be. Um, uh, that was one thing. And then the other thing, I had to do a, a proper item, like the grown-up people uh, with me now. And um, I had to do the, the family, tr- something to, for some reason, the family tree of the royal family. So it was all written uh, all written on a big caption like the one I've just shown you. It was all written there and I had to sort of point out who was born of whom and and I completely, I was so nervous. I was nervous and I completely blew it and I couldn't, I just got confused and muddled and Douglas Ray won't remember this, but Dougal came in. He stepped un, unscheduled into shop with me and helped me get out of it, you know, because I was stuck. And he helped me move on to whatever I had to move on to. I, I always remember that, Dougal, because it shows that you've got a good heart somewhere. That's very <laughs> kind. <laughs> Could you repay me that fiver you borrowed <laughs> later on after the audition? <laughs> so that was my rather inauspicious start, but I loved it. it, was, it uh, as, as the others have said, it's, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it didn't feel like work. And it was live, wasn't it? It was live, all live. It started live, then it went, I think, to one live and one recorded, which I liked much better. I mean, I, you know, live's very exciting and fun, but <laughs> you don't feel quite so in control. And then, was it live, Mick, when you were doing it? Very rarely. There was a sort of safety first um, element dropped into it. I, I'm in contrast to you because I loved live, yes, and I still do. do. And I think there's not nearly enough live television actually now because I think it it pre- provides um, it, it just inbuilt a sense of drama, just because you don't quite know what's going to happen. And I think that's an important element in some broadcasting. Well, there's an awful lot of online broadcasting that isn't live and is quite atrocious now. Um, but I know what you mean. There is an excitement. And, of course, news, news-based things, you know, should actually be more live than they are often. I think some of, some of the um, stuff that they do abroad now in news is, is very, very poor. You know, it's not, they should have somebody live there, and they don't. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do, 
do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying. Oh, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah, yeah. Damn, me, me, we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta don't lie, don't play with it. Play with it. No. Take that shit serious. I've got. I, I tell you one other uh, anecdote because it's to do with life, really, in in a sense. When I was a, while I was a researcher, um, I don't know whether you remember it, you two, but there was a football spot. Uh, each week, and, and for some reason, Dougie didn't get it. Tony Bastable got it, and he, Doug, Tony wasn't interested in football at all. Anyway, it was a live show, and we booked George Best, and the producer was so worried that George Best, who was not, uh, who was not reliable, um, uh, would get to the studio. He sent me, she sent me to Manchester, and I went to his shop, and he came off training, and then I flew with him to to uh, London, to Heathrow, got out of the, uh, the plane, got uh, um, uh, Mr. Wallace, Wallace car hire, um, drove us to um, Teddington studio. And it was a live show. And we just got him on in time to meet Tony before doing a live. Now, you live was, it, it gay, it was a, it was exciting in itself, just because those guys were very difficult to get hold of and, and to have a live show and fit them in was really quite dramatic. And I think it gave everyone a, a lift when they were making the show. Yeah, I mean, the thing I liked about it more than anything uh, as, a, as a fan was it was just the, um, I suppose, the, there was a little bit of a more of a anarchic quality to it compared to, even though, as you say, it was some of, you know, a lot of it was recorded. It just felt a little bit that you were, like we said at the beginning, that you were having just a little bit more fun than they were on the other side. I mean, I, I know they were having fun, and I've interviewed you know Peter and and Val and whatever about what they were doing over there. But it, it just felt as though, yeah, it just felt as though you were down with the kids a little bit more. And of course, the other thing is, um, you all had images as well. There were, you know, I'm, I'm coming to you now, Mick, of course, because you had this big hair. Uh, which became a, a big thing in terms of your personality and everyone knew who you were kind of thing. Um, everyone noticed that. Um, and it just felt, I don't know, it just felt a little bit more of the time, if you know what I mean. Does that does that resonate with you? Is that what you felt at the time when you were doing it? I, I, I honestly doubt whether, uh, whether Biddy Baxter would have allowed me. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But um, I, I'm not sure that she would have uh, entertained me on the show. But um, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying. You just felt as though you're a bit. You were a bit. Of, you know, we said you were a bit more irreverent. You know, a bit more. A bit more fun. A bit more anarchic. A, a bit more. A bit more sort of reflecting uh, of the time, as it were. If you know what I mean, because you, you know, you, you in particular had an image which was quite seventies in a way, and you know, kids. I've still got it now. I, 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 reta- I, I reserve the right to continue with that, that image. Um, uh, I don't know. I, every, we all had our different ways and quirks, and, and, and that's what I agree with Dougal, that it was 
it was we were encouraged to enjoy ourselves and, and of course there were terrible mistakes that were made or, or nervous bits of i you know uh, forgetting what the heck i was talking about but um i i think that was all that was fine i don't think that matters too much and i think you know uh, the sort of the 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 view that professionalism is the be all and end all is wrong you know i don't think that's what connects an audience to someone on television i don't think it's their sort of expertise although as sue said earlier on tony bastable was a, a brilliant presenter i mean he he could talk to the second um but um i'm not sure that that endears you necessarily i think we just were encouraged to be ourselves and that's why i still know these people and love them i want to show you something ashley look Lovely. Can you see yeah. that? Yeah. Up a bit, up that's a bit. There's the, th <laughs> the three of us how we were at our height. <laughs> that's mixed mix hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you all, you all had quite a lot of hair, actually. Yes, we did. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> we, the... were on, we were on trend, I think, is the expression. Yeah, weren't we? I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Douglas, were, were there any... You know, today, in everything you do in TV and radio, you know, I'm, I'm constantly having to fill in ridiculous compliance forms to the nth degree. Were there any rules at Magpie or did anything go? I think right from the start, we were encouraged to be ourselves and to, to allow our personality and character come out. And that's what I loved about doing the show. There was a feeling of trust uh, and belief that the way to make the show show different and uh, more accessible to kids was just to be ourselves. And I loved doing the live shows because because I came from a journalist background where I was doing interviews live and things happened because they were live and you didn't go back and do them again. Um, but I remember... I used to be given the, the job of doing Pets Corner, which, you know, I, I didn't have a, a dog or a cat or anything. I find it quite interesting having these animals around. But the problem is that rehearsing with animals is one thing. Going live with animals is another. <laughs> and you, there was a, I knew it would go one of two ways. One is that as soon as we started, uh, and this actually happened, they died. Um, because the heat of the lights uh, must have driven them to distraction. I had a sheep on once that just before we went on air turned on its back and the legs were up in the air. And, you know, it was waving around. And I said, what is it to the trainer? Is there something wrong with the sheep? The trainer? <laughs> well, the, the chap, the shepherd brought the sheep and he said, yes, the sheep has died. <laughs> I had to, I mean, we, we, we didn't have a standby sheep. So I said, oh, this is interesting. This sheep likes having its tummy rubbed. So with this, <laughs> this, I don't believe dead, um, But the other, the other thing that was slightly more embarrassing, because quite often we brought two of the animals in together to keep each other company. And, of course, we didn't know which sex they were, really. So I would be 
keeping a very straight face and saying, well, if you are looking after um, rabbits or hamsters, you've got to make sure, uh, like these two, that, you know, you keep the straw. And, of course, that was a cue for them to start making babies together, which was hard to explain to seven million kids watching um, that they were just playing and they were clearly involved in serious <laughs> business of making babies. So, so <laughs> that was quite a test as a presenter, not to corpse and uh, look embarrassed. And our great magpie reunion continues on Distinct Nostalgia in just a few minutes. The Awesome Arrives on Distinct Nostalgia with a host of new soap, drama, comedy and entertainment treats, including Casualty at 35. We mark the show's milestone birthday by meeting the woman who uttered the very first words. I think the first words were goodnight. <laughs> Seems good. ironic, but yes. <laughs> and then Distinct Nostalgia meets a woman who became one of the main female faces fans took to their heart for several decades. Kathy Shipton, who became Duffy. So you'd go into this rehearsal room. The whole room is laid out like the studio set. They've got it there and you haven't got a clue. And then they've got poles and they're saying the poles are the edge of the cubicles. So all of us will be going in going... Whoosh, and my first shot, I walked in on the real set in BBC Studio D in White City and I went, and they went, Kathy, you don't have to do that because there's a real curtain, you know, all of this ridiculousness. And we've other casualty blasts from the past as we repeat our conversation with Jonathan Kerrigan. And then there's some intriguing soap specials. We're meeting the first Tracy, Christabel Finch, who played the character from her birth in 1977. It felt very normal because it had been like ever since I was a baby, I'd been there every single week filming. Get out of school, get out of the spelling test and go down to the studios. My friends were not very aware of it. And I remember one person saying to me, saying, are you on Sesame Street? And I was like, no, I'm on Coronation Street. And we've a surprise Emmerdale reunion. There's also a Magpie reunion. What was very different about us is, first of all, we were all much better looking. Oh, God, <laughs> I never said that. <laughs> I think we were younger than the Blue Peter presenters. You know, just a bit more in tune with the people that watched us. We had seven million people watching twice a week. And Tim Vincent goes in search of Valerie Singleton, bumping into other Blue Peter stars along the way. Stuart Miles, Tim Vincent, as I never breathe. Uh, what are you calling me for? What do you want? Well, I'm actually looking for uh, Valerie Singleton's number, but of course, I'm checking in on you. Trips to Sun Hill and the Bill. Memories of Darling Buds of May, The Tomorrow People, and interviews with classic stars Jeanette Scott and Melvin Hayes, and legendary TV composer Dennis King. Our great sitcom writer series continues as we sit down with Clement and Lafrenet, who penned Porridge and The Likely Lads. That had an instant response. The very next day I was shooting a commercial and nobody had any idea that I had anything to do with it, but I heard them all talking about it and that, that made me feel that maybe we had another hit. And as well as all that, we've got the quiz. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, 
a bumper autumn of memories. Only on Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. When the three of you were on together, did it appear that the producer sort of pushed each of you into different directions? So what I mean is, were there certain things that were entrusted uh, to make certain things that were entrusted generally to, to to you, Douglas, and then certain things entrusted to Susan? Were you did you find yourself pigeonholed in certain things? Were there things that they always thought actually this is a job for Douglas, this is a job for Mick, this is a job for, for Susan? Well, I was always allocated or nearly always allocated things to make and do because I was always quite artistic and good with my hands um, and although I couldn't sew for toffee but I used to make things um, and somehow I was always allocated if we had to make something out of a loo roll or out of a cornflakes packet or or um, cut our jeans up short and make them into skirts I was always allocated that task and um which I thoroughly enjoyed. I've still got an odd bit of clothing here and there that stems from then. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Uh, uh, I, I think sexism ruled to, to some degree in those days. I mean, inevitably, because that we were, I'm afraid that was a, an age when there were those problems and um, actually still are to some degree. But um, uh, 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 so I, I was very pleased because I was, I, I can't, Whatever sex I am, I'm not very good at make and do. So I, I did find them very difficult. I'd never been good with my hands. And so I was very relieved when Susan did those. But we did do a bit of cookery, didn't we, Dougal? Yeah, neither of us were great chefs in, in our day. I mean, we, ha- we are now, but I mean, we <laughs> hadn't a clue what was... Are you? <laughs> I think people um, actually, again, you know, if... We were a bit rough and ready with the cooking, but I, I, I actually rather enjoyed it. But I did slosh flour around a bit and stuff. And I think people quite liked that. You know, it was, a, it, it was the beginnings of um, that boy who's now become very famous. What's his name? The boy who does all the... Uh, Jamie Oliver? Jamie, Jamie Oliver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he got his ideas from us. Because yeah. um, we used to be very cavalier, you know, and he is. Isn't he? I think he is. Um, anyway, um, sexism um, uh, did was uh, I think that was the main thing. I I remember um, I felt as though I did an awful lot of the going up high things, but that's because I'm scared of heights, and I hate I uh, every week I seem to have to stand on something high. I, it was uh, a, a, an obsession of directors, and I hated it. Uh, whereas. Dougie was much braver than me. But, I mean, you know that guy, um, what, what's his name, who did the t- Nelson's column that you were talking about on Blue Peter? John Noakes, was well, it, or Peter Travis? John, Johnny Noakes. Johnny Noakes was a brave boy. He, he was really, really brave, I think. I couldn't have done that. I, uh, I remember um, going up very, very high in Egypt because um, we arrived in Egypt to, for the summer trip and... Um, the director said, what about you being the first person to climb the pyramids on the outside? Because it's not allowed. You know, you can go in through them, but you can't go to the top. And I had this wonderful guide who was, didn't speak a word of English, but had a wonderful smile. He said he would take me up to the top of the pyramid. So I had a, I had a, a radio mic 
So I, I could hear the director. And, and so we were filmed at various stages going up this pyramid. And, you know, nobody else has done it. Um, and so we got to the top and, and I could hear the director saying, so if you stand on the top, do a piece and um, we'll have the camera below and we'll, we'll zoom in on you. So I, I was standing there saying, here am I uh, in Egypt and you never guess where I am. And the camera was pulling out. I'm standing on top of the pyramids in Egypt. Probably nobody else in the world has ever been there before. And as far as you can see, and I was about to talk about the sand dunes and the Sahara and everything. And as I looked across, and there wasn't much space at the top of the pyramid, but um, Muhammad had decided that it was quite a private place and nobody would see him, was going to the loo on top of the pyramid. pyramid. <laughs> So he was he was christening the pyramid with a dump. <laughs> so I said, and and as I look around me, I can see I can see I can, I can see Muhammad. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but that's not that wasn't shown on the program. But, that um, is a that is a famous story, though. That's such a funny story yeah. on the top of the Great Pyramid at Giza. <laughs> I remember I was one. Of, sorry, go on. One of my one of my tasks was to go on fireman training, um, which is very very tough, and I was all dressed up in all the things that you have to wear, and the mask, and the um, oxygen tanks on the back, and everything. And I had to climb up a tower, and that was fine. I didn't mind that. Um, and then we had to go through uh, a smoke-filled tunnel. And there was one that you could crawl through and one that you had to go through on your stomach with all this equipment on, with a mask on your face and um, smoke all around you. And I, um, I, I did the crawl through. That was all right. And then when I had to do the one on my stomach, I just froze. I couldn't do it. And until then, I didn't know that I had any sort of claustrophobia, but I certainly have. Um, and did you do it instead of me? Perhaps Tony did it instead of me. It was before you two then, it must have been, because I think Tony Bastable did it instead. But I was absolutely frozen. I couldn't. I thought, what if I expire in the middle and they can't get me out? It was a horrible feeling. And until then, I had no idea that I had this this phobia. Who was entrusted most with with the serious stories? You know, the serious things, the things that were sort of a bit sort of uh, quite deep or whatever. We, we, did you all get a chance to do that? Yeah. Yeah, because we were all we all had we all had a brain, and we were all a little bit serious underneath. And um, uh, no, we 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 enjoyed. I mean, that is a thing when we were doing this program it was a broad range of stories and items and things and we could slip in really quite serious pieces and i think that's children don't get exposed to um serious anymore you know they seek out niche and they seek out what they know and what they know they like and there's no no surprise for them and I think that's a bad thing. You know, I think it's very unfortunate because a kid can watch something and, and if just one in a hundred gets his interest is piqued by 
a story that they know nothing about and they follow it on, it could become a big thing in their lives. And that sort of stimulus isn't, isn't available anymore. And I don't know, you know, I think that's a shame. Anyway, um, we all did serious. Yeah, no, I, I, agree. I, I agree with you on that. I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think TV, children's TV, in my view, back in our day was, you know, it was this whole thing of throwing the smarties up and, you know, and tr trying to reach them, if you know, and grab them kind of thing. It was just a, a Bill, uh, Brian Truman at Cosgrove Hall um, who wrote things like um, Children the Wheelies and things like that. Uh, told me that that was always his approach. That you know, uh, for little kids, he he tried to make the stories fairly fairly intelligent, you know, and and trying to get them to challenge them in a way. I'm just reading uh, the old uh, the ITV annual um, of 1969 here, way way back in 1969, and it's got a, a page about children's programs, and it mentions all the the big ITV regions who all competed for children's programs. And it says Magpie. It says full use was made of the natural amenities of a Riverside studio in Magpie's first year. So tell us a bit about the studio, Thames TV, because it was by the Riverside and you did use most of it, didn't you? It was, you know, it was like TV centre in a way, wasn't it? it was, Thames was used quite a bit at, you know, Teddington. Tell us a bit about that. Well, we use it mostly, I think, when we were collecting money for the the yearly charity, the Christmas charity, because we used to walk all around the corridor and we used to lay tapes showing how much money we'd, you know, go in and out of rooms and in and out of studios and along corridors to, to show how much money we'd collected. I remember that. And, of course, we used to go outside, you know, there was the water there. Um, do, do either of you boys remember any particular outside stuff we did there? I think the appeal was, was something... Um, which actually a lot of people have picked up on now, of, of going behind the scenes in the studio. And as the appeal got more and more successful, because we didn't ask for bottle tops or, or things like that, we asked for money. Um, uh, and we had, a, we had a line leading from the studio all the way down past the other studios, out to the outside. And... Uh, it, it allowed us to meet people who were working in other studios as we walked past. But I remember one day walking down the line saying, and, and, and of course we, we had prearranged this because we knew that in the next door studio there was somebody really famous. And I said, as I, as I come through to the door um, where, where the line went past, I said, in there is Studio 5 and there's someone really important uh, well, you know, you know, can you come out now, sort of thing. Uh, and out comes Ringo Starr. And, you know, then probably the most famous drummer and member of the, the Beatles. And he said, oh, hello, hi. <laughs> and, 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 and said, you know, here's a tenor for the appeal. And so the idea was to try and um, get out of the studio as much as we could. Um, and, and having having the Thames there at Teddington was was a wonderful backdrop for a lot of our interviews, especially in the summer. We used to go out and film a lot of interviews with the backdrop of, of the Thames. I, I just want to add a little bit to um, uh, what my friends have just said about the uh, appeal, because that line, uh, as you both explained, what it did become iconic, and it what what it enabled us to do uh, not only going to other students but we went to backstage of makeup wardrobe props scenes 
design. The the line uh, as the years as the years rolled on, we 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 got more and more ambitious and sort of elongated the the amount of uh, the, the the how much a thousand pounds would take us into five meters and then ten meters, so we could go further and further. And uh, and actually, that had two things about it. One was that uh, um, kids did actually love seeing behind the scenes. Incredibly enough. It hadn't been used that idea, that device. So they they really were amazed that there was a sort of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, an iceberg below the surface of uh, stuff and people and things that contributed. And also, our Thames Television technicians loved it. They loved uh, they loved being included. It was so it was very inclusive in terms of. The, the way the program was viewed on site, you know, the, the crews loved it. And, and we, and the, our relationship with the technicians became over the years, I'm sure you'll agree, Dougal, uh, mm. incredibly important. You know, we, we knew them all, they knew us. It was all a family and it became, uh, it, it's what partly what made the show um, warm. There is a, um, a YouTube uh, episode, an episode on YouTube, I think, from 1972, I think, the year I was born, where, where um, there is, uh, the, 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 you're going around the studio and showing the, how things are filmed and the, the, the changes in the cameras and the new, the new techniques that are being used and that kind of thing. And that's, a, you know, even though it's, it's nearly 50 years ago, it's a really interesting uh, episode to watch, actually, because, you, you know, then a lot more than I, 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 you know, fifty odd years on, but I, or fifty years on, but actually, it's still, it's still really, 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 really interesting. Um, do you remember doing that one? Does anybody remember doing that one? Yes, I think I did. I think I did that. It might have been with Tony Bastable because he was quite, quite technical. Um, yes, we were showing the new cameras as against the old big cameras, and I mean, look at them now. My goodness. But it's kind of moved on. But uh, it, it, they, they were very interested in, in how it all worked. I've just got this magazine here, which says on Friday, the 12th of January, um, 1974, we'd collected already £67,508.76. Uh, there, 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 <laughs> there's the line. <laughs> Friday, the 12th of January... 1974. So it might well have, because uh, we went on for a few more uh, weeks than that. So it may, oh, it may yes, yes, figures, yes. That, that, that one. Yeah. I mean, they were, I, I loved um, uh, raising money, not asking for cotton reels or something, because um, uh, it was, you know, it was proper and you knew what you were getting. And we showed, didn't we? We had lists. Of things that we were buying for a home, which was a, very effective, I think that very effective. Always telling them, you know what we bought this week. We've been and we took them to, uh, you know, if, if it was for a home for challenged children, we took to show we bought this wheelchair or we, you know, we put these curtains up or whatever it happened to be. I'll tell you a little story about how seriously we were taken actually because we used to have weekly meetings as to what we wanted to put in the show and we all made suggestions um, and I was always very much against circuses and when there was anything to do with a circus and performing animals which I particularly didn't like I was never given it to do they really re respected that 
And Sue Turner, the producer, never, never pressed me to do anything I didn't want to do like that. Terrific. And, uh, and that even applied, famously, one week to a flea circus. Did it? Probably. It, <laughs> <laughs> you don't it surprise did. me, yes. You I think you said, me. look, you know, circus, anything. Yes, any, I might anything. well have done. I, I, I still feel the same. I don't like mm. seeing it. Although we used to have animals in the studio, and I remember one particular animal we had in the studio, which was very much out of its depth, literally, and that was a baby seal cub. And lo and behold, it showed its dislike by peeing all over the studio floor while we were on air. And I've never smelt anything like it. Have you ever smelt seal pee, seal. Ashley? No, <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> uh, I, if had Dougal run over the studio and slipped and fell on his bum <laughs> on, in the seal, that would have made magpie. That yes. would have made, we would have been on every... Just like the elephant. You know? The elephant, yes. Blue Peter elephant. <laughs> Ours was a seal. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. You were saying, uh, Douglas, about meeting you know, Ringo Starr as you were going around. But just give us a sense of that place at that time. You know, talk about Thames Television. You know, it was a, a hotbed of creativity, wasn't it? There was so much going on there that actually you, you three, when you were going to work, would be bumping into all sorts of people, I'm sure, at Thames Television. Just give us an, an impression as to what kind of place you were working at back in the early 70s well it, in a way it was it, it was wonderful because it changed every day and uh, we had a wonderful restaurant overlooking the thames and you'd have all sorts of people in there there'd be actors famous people and personalities you know but because because you were there doing your job you know it was it was an added treat but you do you weren't phased by it in fact the more famous they were the more we tried to encourage them to get involved in the magpie appeal so it was <laughs> it was very nice to be able to to i mean i think i think when you when you've spent a lot of time with people who are well known you know around you you're not as phased by them as as you would um, normally and and also the crews we worked with were very uh, I wouldn't say cynical but they they had seen it all before and we had one wonderful uh, props guy called Sid who was a real Cockney gentleman and you know if you were feeling a little bit nervous because you had a big show to do Sid would just say look it's fine you know that they're, they're, they're going to love it. Um, and then he'd pick up his 
paper, it was always the sun. And somehow he got stuck on page three throughout the whole of the programme. <laughs> That's right, he did. And um, there was something calming about a bloke who's about five feet away and you're talking to seven million people. Um, the only time he wasn't there was I, I volunteered to do a, an interview with a, a guy who looked after tigers. And normally Sid's there in his usual chair behind the camera reading the paper and I come in five seconds to go or something. I said, where's Sid? And they said... And I looked up to the lighting gantry and Sid had climbed up onto the lighting gantry and this enormous tiger came in with a broke. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and, you know, while you trust the trainer, when, when he hands you the tiger's chain and head and says, oh, give him a clap. And, and there's Sid upstairs <laughs> looking down. That was hilarious. At least it didn't die like the sheep. No. The tiger, not Sid. <laughs> I have to say, actually, um, uh, listening to us now, uh, animals, we did have too many animals, didn't we? Uh, we? We didn't. Oh, kids love animals. <laughs> I know, but it, they, it wasn't good to have tigers on chains in no, no. studios. Uh, anyway, uh, it's all gone and um, it, we did it. That was the time. Um, uh, can I just say that, um, uh, that those, all those people around, it was exciting, you're right. And, um, uh, and they, uh, Kenny Everett, do you remember the Kenny Everett show was next door? And that was always great because they had wonderful music and uh, wonderful dancers whose names yeah. I can't remember now. I can't remember the name of his dancers. Can you, Dougal? It wasn't yeah. Pan's people, but they were fantastic. And, and, um, and we used to um, have a, a drink in the bar and there were Morecambe and Wise, you know, uh, Eric Morecambe being uh, very affable uh, and uh, happy to meet any guests that, that uh, came up and, and asked. You had, uh, and you had, obviously, Tommy Cooper would probably be around. Benny Hill was done at Thames, wasn't it? George Benny Hill, the... yes, I remember Benny Hill being in the restaurant quite often. George and Mildred was done there, wasn't it, as well? And Man About the House and all those kind of things. It was all, it was a, you know, there was so much being, I mean, it's a fantastic place, Thames, wasn't it? And also at the same time as you were on, um, that's when Rainbow started, wasn't it? 1972 Rainbow began as well. So there, that's right. There's there so many kids' programmes being done there. It's a, a, amazing. What did it do to you three in terms of your general lives? Here you were being watched by 7 million people, which today, you know, an episode of Coronation Street, probably, if it's lucky these days, although it's still at the top of the rating, will get about five or six million or something, or maybe seven or eight million. But you were getting that all the time. So what did it do to you in terms of your daily lives? You know, what impact did it have? Did you, you know, what was it like to suddenly, I suppose, be, be famous, Mick? Oh, well, it was great. I mean, it was, it was, it was a very nice, uh, it was okay, um, I think, you know, you, you have to control it and you have to not get too carried away with yourself. And I don't think we did. I'd like to think we didn't anyway. I mean, I just remember um, doing a live show and then driving to Fratton Park, Portsmouth to watch football at 7.45 and half the crowd seemed to have seen the show because there were only two channels. Um, and um, and so the, the volume of people that actually did know what you were doing and who you were 
was quite extraordinarily high at that time. But it it didn't it they they didn't treat the the celebrity thing hadn't really begun then I don't think and uh, you could sort of mix with people and it you know it, it it was not oppressive or or dangerous or difficult or embarrassing it was really nice. How did the kids react to you though? You know when you met kids, what were what was their impression of you on on the on the TV, Douglas? Well, I mean, the, 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 the huge advantage of doing Magpie in terms of its effect on your personal life is people genuinely wanted to come and talk to you. Um, uh, and lots of, when you were walking down the King's Road or something, kids would do a double take. And, but as Mick said, you know, we, we weren't pop stars, but we were, we were in their consciousness. Um, but the, the best thing of all was going to restaurants because once you rang up and said who you were, there was a certain frisson uh, because when you got there, all the waiters who start at six o'clock, say, had all watched Magpie. And I went to a Spanish restaurant quite a lot and uh, you walk through the door and they almost applaud and they called it Mahipi, Mahipi. <laughs> Ah, we love you on Mahipi. <laughs> and you'd end up getting a free meal. So, I mean, that was nice because people would talk to you, would come and say, well, I love that bit on this. And, you know, so it was, um, you know, it was a very positive response, uh, but wasn't overwhelming. We used to sign a thousand. I remember signing a thousand photographs a week. When we, when we used to sit down for our meetings. And as a result, my writing is completely illegible there. <laughs> what, what, about you, what about you, Susan, as a, as a woman? Uh, how, what was it like being a, you know, a, 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 somebody who was recognised on a regular basis? Absolutely great. I mean, I, I, exactly. I was going to say exactly what Douglas said about and most people who have easily recognised from show business say it's lovely to get a decent table at a restaurant. <laughs> it is true. It's one of the things that does come to you when the restaurants are open, of course. Um, and taxi drivers always, somehow people always used to recognise my voice. And I noticed, I noticed more after I left Magpie. It went on for a year. Well, it still happens now, fun enough. If I'm in the supermarket or something, people will still recognise me by my voice first. Um, but uh, yes, it, it was very nice to, 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 to be um, recognised and from parents and children because I think Magpie was very popular with a lot of parents, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of older people as well as kids. And, and uh, it's just, you, you have to be careful, as Mick said, not to get above yourself. You know, it's quite tempting to take on airs and graces but we we just were never it wasn't that sort of show it really wasn't and uh, the idea was to be friendly and so friendly we had to be whether we felt like it or not as as kids of course in the 70s we used to have a um, itv did a itv took their children's programs very seriously i think back in the day and of course they used to have a there was a there was a junior tv times which was called looking that's right. And, uh, and all of you were often in looking, you know, there was pictures of you in different poses and different things like that. So the, you mentioned that you weren't pop stars, but there was a sort of pop star appeal about you to the audience in a way, especially you, Mick. Ah, um, <laughs> um, yes. 
Um, I, I tell you what, um, I feel that um, in a in a way we were lucky because we we preceded the social media that now is prevalent. Um, so I I don't recall people being unpleasant. I just don't. I think now I think some people uh, get have a an awfully difficult time, really tough time through social media uh, be because they may misspoken in some way or other i don't know but um i don't we didn't attract any of that you know uh, so i think it was a golden time really in that sense um uh, no, no, and no, I'm, not, I'm not talking i'm not talking about it negatively i'm just talking about it in terms of your you know your images and things you know you were you know, you, you had, we've said before, you had your hair, you had a certain style of clothes and things. You were, you're all, in a way, you're all, you're all trendsetters in a way, weren't you? Well, Mick was certainly, look, looked just like a pop star. He still does, don't you? I saw that thing about Mark Boland the other day on television and it reminded me of your haircut. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Mark, yeah. No, you, you looked like, you looked like a pop star at the time. And Mick, uh, didn't you go on Top of the Pops? I did, I did, Dougal. I wish you hadn't mentioned that. Why? Why? <laughs> um, no, because I had to dance with Pan's people, Sue. And it was uh, a worse experience than anything I ever endured on Magpie. Uh, uh, you know, as you will remember, dancing, uh, I mean, in a formal sense, was, wasn't my thing. And um, uh, to, to have Babs... Uh, taking hold of me and maneuvering me in a tango around the dance floor was um it was something i don't wish to uh, recollect too strongly i wish it I'd was very difficult it. very difficult <laughs> yeah no but i mean no oh, gosh ever loads of things happened to us didn't they i mean it was a very exciting time i can't deny that ashley it, it was it was good fun but we were normal we're essentially at heart we're all normal. <laughs> just, just, a, just a slight aside, because we mentioned Pan's people there, and we were talking earlier on about uh, Kenny Everett's group, weren't we? And it was Hot Gossip. Hot Gossip. Yeah, That's right. Hot Gossip. Hot Gossip, hot gossip fantastic. <laughs> um, so I mentioned about um, ITV and having loads and loads of different children's programmes at the time. Did you feel, as a, as a programme, that you were... You know, you were taken seriously by the big bosses at ITV at the time. Was Magpie, you know, was it something that they, they were proud of? Oh, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. I think it was terribly successful for them. Really. Well, look how long it ran. And it was a tragedy, I think a tragedy when they took it off, actually. I mean, I left when I left. Um, um, and Jenny took over, Jenny Handley. And I remember actually being part of the the team that auditioned for who was going to take over. They offered me the production and I didn't want to do it. And you know the reason I wanted to leave? It was interesting. I, I found that they were asking me to do the things I'd done before. It sort of had come round full circle. We'd done so many things. And I found I couldn't feel fresh anymore saying, I've never done this before. And you know what this is like. I, I found I was getting a bit stale. Um, and that's why I left. But they offered me the to, to direct it, uh, just like they offered Tony, who did direct it for a while when he left. Um, 
but it, it was it was hugely successful and they they were very 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 proud of it and it was a very expensive show i mean that's one of the reasons why it came off frankly very expensive and and well worth it i reckon well, okay. I, would say that, wouldn't I was I? going <laughs> to say what what were the reasons why it came up one of them was financial you reckon i expect probably entirely financial frankly you know they don't spend that sort of money on children's programs anymore although i mean i didn't actually feel what super i did the show for rather a long time i did do it until the bitter end so uh, eight years or something so um i i didn't ever feel that i was doing the same thing again although i understand that feeling but i didn't ever feel that um but i did stay too long because i loved it i was too i was too happy i it was uh, it was such a fun it was good fun and um i shouldn't have stayed on it as long as i did and i i regret bitterly not leaving because i did feel that um it, the presenters shouldn't grow old too old and i think i was getting too old really for the show but um uh i and 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 the, it was a, a boneheaded stupid uh decision by uh, exec- ITV executives to um, to throw that brand in the dustpan, absolutely in the in the dustbin when they built it over a decade, um, and the success of Blue Peter still uh, proves that it was a crazy, crazy decision, and and then they tried to rev- I I was involved in a rev- in an attempt to make another magazine show to take its place. They tried all sorts of attempts to make a new magazine show. They never worked because it's damn hard building a brand. It takes time. It takes a lot of energy, and it takes good people, and it takes uh, patience. And they didn't have any patience to do it again. I I, I still feel uh, aggrieved that they they dropped it, but I don't. But I do blame myself for staying too long. Douglas, have you anything to say about that, about how it ended? I agree with Mick. You know, if you build a brand like that, you can evolve the brand and, you know, you evolve it by having different presenters and bringing in diversity and, you know, making it two women and a man or whatever. But I think it was a, I think it was probably something they regretted uh, because if you look at the endurance of Blue Peter and the huge success it still has, there's no reason why Magpie couldn't have continued to, to go on and reflect you know, what kids are doing today. But um, I can announce exclusively to you, Ashley, that um, Mick and Sue and I are going to bring it back uh, for one more run. And on this programme, I'd like to take the opportunity to say we would welcome your viewers to get behind this campaign to reinstate Magpie with the original presenters. Are you going to try and get back into the clothes you were wearing back then as well? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a very happy time, but um, it was stupid to lose that brand, wasn't it? I, uh, of course it was. Just a couple of more questions. Um, now, Andrew, I don't know whether Andrew's done his research right on this one, so collect, correct me if I'm wrong. Was there a moment that, um, I mean, it's always good, isn't it, to make a difference? And you made a difference, obviously, with the appeals and things like that. But um, I'm told there was a moment where 
a viewer saved someone's life because they saw something being done on Magpie. Is that right? Does anybody recall that? That rings a bell with me, but I can't remember why. I think somebody, and I don't think it was me, I wouldn't have been entrusted with it, but I think someone did actually, uh, because we used to have first aid um, mm -hmm. items, little uh, first aid items at one point, and I think that the, a dummy was provided on the floor, and w one of us had to uh, demonstrate the Heimlich manoeuvre um, in order to save a life, and... It wasn't me who did it, but do you remember that? Does that ring a bell with either of you two? Or was it mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation or something? Or was it drowning or something? It just yeah. is in the back of my mind. You've got to ask, uh, you've got to ask Andrew where he got it from. <laughs> Give him a ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but either way, um, it's great to feel as though, you know, you, you were making a difference to children's lives, isn't it? I hope so. Well, I'd like to think that was a massive thing throughout the whole, the whole run of the show that we did that. I, I remember a very famous um, executive, television executive, Jeremy Isaacs, once uh, I met him uh, as I was starting Magpie, and he said, just remember that you're talking to uh, children sitting on the third floor of a high-rise flat in Wigan. And um, uh, he was right, you know, that we were, we were talking to little rooms with one or two people in everywhere. And we all, we, that's what we did. Um, and I, I, I just think there's nothing more important than that. Do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on. Yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think. It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy and thinking that that's going to be OK. East is East by Ayub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband. And as a new version of the story comes back to the stage in Birmingham, why not remind yourself of the movie classic with Distinct Nostalgia's special trilogy of star interviews. Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life. But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him. And I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nickel and Chris Bisson. It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before. They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time, to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. This series of special interviews is available now at distinctnostalgia.com. Right, the final question for all of you then, it's a bit of a double-edged sword really question, is, is you know, what, what did Magpie do for you personally, for your careers? Um, you know, when you look back at it, obviously I know you all look back at it with affection because you can tell that when you're talking and you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have uh, 
answered our request to, to reunite. Um, but what, what, what did it do for you and how do you look back at it in terms of your, your life and your career? And, you know, did it, did it sort of train you for other things that you've done in life? Start off with you, Susan. I mean, I remember you, Susan, from probably more actually in a way, uh, because I was a little kid, from paper play more than I do from, um, from Magpie. So, you know, itsy and bitsy are in my mind all, all the time. So I know that you went on to do other things, but tell me, what did it do for your career, Magpie, did it? Well, firstly, it moved me away from acting, which is what I was doing and aiming to do, to presenting and talking to people and being myself, as it were, directly, which was a complete departure and a very, very good move because it suited me to a T. I really enjoyed the job. Um, my father always used to say to me, Susan, everything by turn and nothing long, that's you. And it's true, I'm like that. I have a bad concentration for long things. I'm not very good at digging things deep, but I like to hoppity skip along and it suited me. Then from that, I started paper play while I was still at Magpie and created my own show. And I've always liked working for children. And um, I, I went on to do Nationwide, which was a news programme, basically, after Magpie and did a few other things. And then um, I started a long time ago now, um, Abracadabra, which is a children's radio station. It's now online. Um, and we, we run it as a sort of charity because I think listening is so important to kids as well. Um, it just made, I think it made me more confident to try out new things, different things, and, and never forget, you know, there's always a sideways move that you can make if things are not going as you planned them. You can always do it. What about you two? What about you, Mick? Uh, I mean, th this was a, a really interesting time to be in television as well, wasn't it? Because it, there were, you know, in a way, we were talking about being anarchy, but you could be experimental. You could try things out. What did it, what did it do for your, for your career, do you think? Yeah, and we we went from two stations, two screens, two um, uh, pro, uh, what are they called channels, to um, to a thousand and two, you know. So it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Um, well, there was more, uh, there was more on the two channels than there is on the thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I uh, I think um, I I'd always wanted to. I I was. Uh, was interested in kids and communication with kids anyway and so i was very happy to stay with um uh, children and young people which i did throughout my career and um i i um i started uh, getting other people to do the work really basically after after magpie mm -hmm. or i did free time which was another um children's show at thames which is lovely and then uh, i i drifted into um producing and then uh i love that uh, uh, that's really good fun as Dougal will tell you in a minute um that's uh, assembling a good team is uh, a, a little work of art it's a fantastic thing to do and uh, i enjoyed that immensely and i worked with some wonderful young people and uh, who who made me look good i used to tell them that in meetings make me look good you know come up with something great and uh, um, and make it well and they did and um so I, enjoy, I did that for the rest of my career and i was very happy doing that and i i still think that their kids are the the most important audience that we have to work for in television and before we go on to douglas that hair the hair that you're famous for back in the day 
How, what, you know, what, what do you, you know, how did you do that every day? How did you make it look so immaculate? Um, I, 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 my genes um, have provided me with curls. And um, uh, uh, as all curly people will know, it's much less bother, you know, because it springs back into shape when you get up in the morning. Um, you never have to worry about it too much, or I haven't done anyway. People will complain and say, you know, why didn't he bloody well look a bit more smart? But um, uh, it's just uh, it's, it's just grown like that, you know. I think he was impressive. I liked your hair. <laughs> <laughs> so, Douglas, what, what about you? Uh, you? You've got on to some great things too. Tell us, uh, what did Magpie do, to, do for you? What did well, you I, as a little boy growing up in Edinburgh, where... The winters start about August the 5th and go through to May. The, the one thing you can do is go to the cinema. And I loved going to the cinema. The first film I ever saw was um, about uh, Scott at the, the South Pole and, you know, wonderful sort of cowboy films and adventures. But I, I, I was obsessed with going to the cinema every Saturday morning and I... I, I actually found I had a very vivid imagination. And at school, the teacher said, you write in pictures. And I had no idea what he was talking about. But I think he saw embryonically, there was a filmmaker there, because I wanted to tell, I wanted to tell stories in pictures. Um, and so by coming down to Magpie and coming out of that slightly claustrophobic feeling of being in a small country and being encouraged to be yourself and, and to be part of a big team of people and to see how everything worked was an incredible education uh, for someone who always has had a, an ambition to become a filmmaker, a producer, to make things, but more importantly, or just as importantly, to run my own company. And um, so... It gave me enormous confidence, a lot of humility, I think, as well, and, you know, two wonderful friends for life. But it, it taught me a lot about um, how you empower people and how you encourage people to do uh, their best. And at the end of the day, a good producer is somebody who chooses well, chooses a good team, doesn't try and do... Every, every job because you know that they can do it better than you, but you give them the, the feeling that you're behind them in every way. And so that's been a fantastic lesson in life. Um, and also I think it's, it's made me a better parent because I've got three children, Mick's got three, and um, Susan's got a son who's been advising us all morning how, to, how the technicalities work. And it's, you know, and, and so being in that environment for five years, meeting lots of children, just seeing the whole magic of children and how natural they are, and they'll say things that are extraordinary. So when, you know, when you have your own children, you feel, you know, you're ready for it because nobody can prepare you for becoming a parent. But Magpie did a pretty good job at it. Well said, well said. I understand what you say as well about the, the producing side of things. I mean, the great thing about what you did as well is on Magpie is it was such an eclectic mix of things that you were involved in, wasn't it? And, um, you know, and, and, and as a producer, I presume, you've gone on to, you know, 
to, I mean, the thing I love about, about producing generally and running my own production company is just the whole thing of being able to make something happen for people, really. Mm -hmm. Because often, you know, certainly in recent years, I've managed, I, I'm, not, I wasn't an, I'm not an actor or anything like that, but I've made, I, I've made things happen for quite a lot of actors and writers. And, you know, um, okay, it's radio, and sometimes, as, as, as Susan will know, radio budgets are absolutely appalling. Um, but, you know, helping some people to create it gives you a tremendous buzz, doesn't it? Sort of give, give well, people an opportunity, you know. It's like being a chemist, you know, because I, I, asked, I get asked to go and talk to young producers and, you know, what, because people don't understand what a producer does. They, they know what a director does and an actor does. And, and I say, you know, look, it's, it's a bit like being an alchemist. You know, you, you have a pot and you put in the ingredients and you grind them around lovingly and, and somehow what comes out of that pot is, is a magic formula. Um, and that totally confuses them, of course. So <laughs> the other way to explain it is when you go to the circus and you see a man spinning 10 plates and you know that the one at the end is going to fall down and he doesn't do anything, and just as... Just as you think he's going to blow it, you know, he just gives it a little twirl and all the plates are spinning at once. So that's what, that's what producers do. They spin all the plates at once. Yeah, and hope that none of them... Very good. Not, no, none of them crash down. I'm, I'm juggling constantly. Constantly, it's a nightmare. Um, <laughs> so finally then, a little bit of fun. Um, Susan started off by reciting it at the beginning. Um, but can you, who can, who can have a go at the, let's all have a go at the, or you have a go at the, uh, the one for sorrow lyrics. Who remembers it all the way through? Who thinks they can do uh, that? I'm not sure I, I can do it. All I won't through. do it unless I, unless the well, others do. Um, well, um, <laughs> one, for sorrowed, one, three, one for sorrowed, two for joy, three for girl, four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret never to be told. No, no, no. Oh, no. Eight's a wish. Eight's a wish. Nine's a kiss. Ten, Ten for, for a bird, bird you, must, you not must not miss. <laughs> Spencer Davis Group. Spencer Davis Group recorded that. Sadly, yeah. uh, Spencer Davis himself passed last year. Yeah. Um, but a, a big band, good band, to have done our theme tune. Absolutely. And who did our who did our uh, um our uh, Graphics, somebody very Mick, famous. Mick, Mick, no, 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 Mick Banville, Mick Banville who wasn't very oh. famous, but a lovely oh, boy, it, um, a, a boy in uh, in graphics in uh, uh, Teddington. Oh, Mick I Manville, you was... remember him? Lovely boy. But isn't I, it interesting I... that the the rainbow effect that he got in 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 the design is is what the NHS are being. Applauded yes, for now. Yes, yes. Fifty yes, years yeah. on. Just one final question. I'll, I'll thank you all and say goodbye in a moment. But Susan, mm -hmm. with, uh, with, with, with paper play, yes. um, <laughs> whatever happened to Itsy and Bitsy? Um, well, I've got a pair of them upstairs, but uh, the the fellow that designed them called um, Norman Beardsley, who was actually a studio. Um, somebody who cleaned the studios was terribly talented with making paper things and he brought some things to show me once and he brought the two spiders 
and I thought how beautifully they worked together and that that was how it started so um so if if not I think I hope Norman's still around I mean I, I used to get Christmas cards from him from time to time and he made the puppets and and they didn't go on to have another show they should have done really they were very successful as you know as one of the little boys <laughs> did, you, did you did you ever sort of um take them out and about did, did kids ever meet bitsy and bit oh yes yes we and and you could buy them for a while somebody produced them i think as you know marketing but marketing wasn't quite so energetic as it is now um I, i'm sure they'd have made a huge amount of money now um, but a lot of people remember them with great love and affection. And as I say, I've got two little ones, but they're too small for my hands because they were made for children. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, fabulous. Real, real great memories of, of, of paper play. Fantastic. That used to be on at lunchtime, didn't it? Was it at lunchtime? Um, I think about 12 o'clock. I can't really remember, but it was, it was great fun to do. We did it in front of Blacks at the back. But what the most important thing I think that those of us in show business have to remember now, and it's very difficult, Mick brought it up at the beginning, you've got to you don't want children just to choose what they know about and what they want. You have to give people, and it's our job, something that they never knew they could have. And until we can get show business back on track again, you know, and and what's happening now is quite appalling. I was watching um, Sky Arts, um, one of the ballets, Capella, I think it was, and I cried because I couldn't believe the size and the talent of that company, the orchestra, all those people that have to learn those things and you know unless we can drag it back again we will all we'll have is what we choose ourselves we won't ever see anything that we never knew we we could see no absolutely absolutely well it's been lovely to talk to all of you douglas mick uh, and susan and i'm sure the audience will will enjoy um hearing from you as well all these years later i mean it's literally in 1968 we're talking how many years we're talking we're talking three years ago it started it all began um and it's been off air 41 years um but it's still talked about still missed in many ways and you're all still talking to each other so that's fabulous <laughs> <laughs> we even like one another <laughs> Great stuff. And if you're a Blue Peter fan, you'll enjoy something special we've got coming soon. Tim Vincent is going in search of Valerie Singleton, and he'll be meeting one or two others along the way. Hi, Peter. It's Tim Vincent. How are you? Oh, hi, Tim. How are you? Nice to hear from you. I'm not too bad. i tell you why I'm ringing up. I'm trying to get hold of Valerie's number, by any chance. What, Singleton? Yes. Hmm. I'm not sure. I've got her now. I've got an address somewhere. Well, I'm tempted to ask, why do you want Val's phone number, Tim? I'll only pass it on to you if you divulge why you want it. <laughs> Tim Vincent, as I breathe. Uh, what are you calling me for? What do you want? H- Hello? T- Tim? Tim? Tim Vincent. Tim Vincent. Oh, Carl. It's Tim. Just it's about oh, 20 minutes or something. I'm, I'm no, no, that's Tim Vincent from Blue Peter. Listen out for In Search of Valerie Singleton with Tim Vincent very soon on Distinct Nostalgia. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.